0: Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet and I'm here with Rachel Madel. Rachel! Do you remember what we talked about in a, in a previous banter about PECs? Yes,
1: yes I did. And
0: <laughs> we took that um, that banter and we also made it into a little video that we put up on YouTube. Remember that? Yes, I remember all of this. Well, it's been popping off a little bit, don't you think?
1: <laughs> it has been. And I think we knew, Chris, this is going to be... Um, you know, a little contentious <laughs> with some uh, of our audience and some folks. Um, but yeah, I mean, people have really strong opinions about what we said.
0: Now, that's not to say that the comments have all been negative. It's been really, um, uh, I think the comments we've been getting from multiple sources have been a really great um it's a really great question that people are kind of wrestling with, you know, and I completely understand that Uh, this PECS itself, picture exchange communication systems, that strategy has been around since 1985. It's deeply rooted in people's consciousness. So changing to a new way of thinking about it is it's going, people aren't just going to go, go do that, right. It's going to take some effort and some thought about how to Uh, why they should be thinking about things in a different way. And so we thought maybe a a good strategy here would be to look at some of the comments that were made and talk about some of the points that have come up to kind of continue this conversation going and continue uh, having people like stretch their thinking when it comes to uh, this particular problem. How does that sound?
1: It sounds great. And I also just want to kind of reiterate, we are happy that we got some negative pushback um, or negative comments, maybe I shouldn't say negative, but we got some disagreeing opinions. I think that that's something that, you know, is really useful because ultimately I think that when we can have an thoughtful discussion about our viewpoints and our perspectives and our ideas. Um, I think that it's important to have kind of dissenting opinions to think through. Um, and so I thank every you know, person who commented on that post or video and all the things that we shared, because I think that it's really helpful to have a discussion about it.
0: Yeah, really, I mean, I think that's how the world should work, um, and it feels maybe right now, I'll do a, a general commentary on the world, that it can feel like people, uh, no matter what the topic is, pick a side and stick in the, their lanes and uh, fight with each other and make fun of each other and post, like, uh, nasty little jabs at each other, and that's not this discourse at all. It is totally um, respectful and professional and, um, and moving the ball forward, I think.
1: Yes. Okay. Let's dive in. Where do we want to start?
0: Let's start with maybe one of the comments that we got from one of our platforms and just sort of summarize it, do you think? And then uh, maybe comment on it.
1: Yeah. So um, I think one kind of theme that was coming up um, when we were reading through the comments is this idea of, you know, how do we introduce a robust language system to students who perhaps have low motivation or, um, you know, there's challenges with this idea of a student using robust language. Um, and like, where do you even begin with something like a robust high-tech speech generating device? And I think that ultimately, I think that what happens is there's like a snap judgment that's made, um, about a student off the bat, that we need to be really careful of, um, because I think that when we're thinking about, you know, categorizing students as, you know, low or all these like kind of labels that we put on students, um, then we automatically assume that, you know, we don't start with high tech. And so I think one, we have to question why are we putting labels on students, right? Especially if they have complex communication needs. We don't even know, you know, what they know oftentimes um, because they just don't have the language and the access to language. Um, And so I think that that's kind of the first step because I think a lot of what I'm hearing is like, you know, oh, robust language systems are great for some of my kids, but not all of my kids. Um, And this is not the place to start with some of my kids who, you know, don't have. Um, you know, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, certain cognitive skills and, um, you know, all these things. And so I think that first we need to kind of unpack, like, why are we putting these labels on students to begin with?
0: It's funny, just even the words you used right there, Rachel, you're like, uh, and all these things. Like, it's, that's where it sort of breaks down, I think, for a lot of people is that, uh, and I would 100% agree with you, that there's like, well, it's some people think, well, robust AEC is good for some kids, but not all kids. Or we start with some kids, but we start with that, but others we don't. Like, okay, let's tease that out. Which students do we do that with? And which students do we didn't, do we not? And then it suddenly, it devolves into this sort of um, uh, nebulous. Uh, well, I'm not really sure. We can't really define it. It's uh, all of this. Well, sometimes this kid, somebody like, I'll know it when I see it. It's, uh, and it becomes this, um, like I said, I, you can't even really describe. Like, here are the ten characteristics of a student that, and here's the ten characteristics of a student. Like, that doesn't exist, you know. Um, so I think that is one of the reasons. Um, like, we don't. Let's not even spend our time trying to come up with fictitious lists. Let's just start with the robust AAC. But that leads us to that other question that you you started with, which is, okay, how do I start with robust AAC? Like, robust AAC means thousands of words so does that mean i sit down with a student that is first seeing aac and i open up an app that has thousands of words and i just start modeling and like maybe one day through osmosis they'll get it because that what's like if you're a you're the first time you're hearing about using aac that way you might get that that impression it also might feel um like that, there's no structure behind it at all. Like, yeah, you just start modeling things, and then like magic happens, you know. But really, there is um, a way to one uh, introduce it and two um, use it systematically um, and implement it systematically. That would maybe have some better results than a haphazard results would you or a ha- haphazard uh, um, implementation strategy. Would you agree? <laughs>
1: I absolutely would agree and I feel like you bring up a really important point that I think we've talked about on the podcast, but I think we need to reiterate, um, you know, this. we know the importance of aided language input and modeling and I think that we communicate that often on this podcast and a lot of people communicate that. I think that that's becoming very well known in, you know, kind of the area of AAC is that kids learn AAC through modeling. Um, But I think that that's one part of this puzzle, right? Um, like you said, Chris, you know, it, it, it's not my frequent experience to have students, you know, get lots of modeling throughout their day and then all of a sudden through osmosis, they're using all this language on their own. Um, and I think that that's where the disconnect is with clinicians who are new to AAC or educators or parents, um, you know, we need to model language, but we also at the same time need to figure out opportunities where we give space And you know, present you know some type of um, you know something, a communication opportunity, and then we allow students to start formulating and initiating and working on all those kind of foundational communication skills. Um, And I think that that's where. People may be a little confused. Um, you know, I'll give an example. I was working with a family. I ended up doing an intensive with them, and there was no lack of modeling in this kid's life. Like everybody on the team was modeling, which is not my common situation, right? Like usually, it's like, whoa, well, we need more modeling, everybody." Uh, but this, you know, student in particular had so much aided language input, but it was almost too much aided language input because. they weren't ever giving the child space to actually initiate communication on their own. And so then the child was just waiting for the model, imitating the model, and that's what you know, communication looked like for the student. Um, and so, you know, that's an example of how it's not just modeling, right? It's not just like showing kids the words, it's also figuring out how can we tempt with communication temptations and set up situations where a child needs to use language to get some type of desired outcome, um, you know, in order to, to, to show that, like, they can communicate independently. They don't have to just wait for us to tell them the words to say.
0: Um. Man, there's so much to unpack here. Uh, so one thing that we can do to try and do that in a structured way is to plot out the target vocabulary words that we want per week, you know, and really focus on, okay, we're going to hit these and teach these explicitly doing... Um, D- designing lessons, designing experiences where kids will participate um, or a- experience what those words mean and see us modeling them. Um, where they ha- and so thinking through that sort of um, that planning process, right, like what the words are. But I still want to go back. So, th- so that's like a, what you do long term right, is you plan for the words, and you, you do that, sus- sus- I always say, want to say systemically, but it's systematically. You do that systematically throughout the course of the year, and you provide strategies so parents can follow through at home, um, and it can be integrated together. Okay, but there's still this question that lingers is the student is in the room with you, you're, you want to try AAC. Do you start with thousands of words, like you open up the AAC app and you have thousands of words, or do you start with like a pared down masked version of that? Um, And in the context of PEX, some people will say, and we mentioned this just briefly, but I'll bring it up again because it kept coming up in the comments, PEX has worked to Uh, promote initiation like uh, because it's so tactile and someone hands something to somebody else there's this physical action of giving somebody something else it seems to work I would say that AAC is the same way that you're still doing some sort of motor movement so how do you answer that question do you have a thousand words or do you just have a few words what's your take
1: I can tell you what I do I don't know what everybody else does but I can tell you what I do
0: And then I'll tell you what I do and we'll see if we do the same thing.
1: It's interesting. And I think it'll be interesting if we don't do the same thing. And I would love if we don't do the same thing because it just shows that there's not one direct path to kind of success. Right. Um, So what I personally do and, and to be fair, this depends on a variety of factors. So like. Factors being, you know, what's a student's language level? What are they already communicating? Do they have some verbal speech? But this is more to augment speech. Um, you know, do they have AAC on another, maybe a different system that, that they have experience with AAC already? So there's lots of factors that go into this. But you know, I'm going to just say we're talking about an emergent communicator who doesn't have any, you know, speech or you know has very limited language um, because typically that's what we're thinking about when we're introducing something like PEX or you know a high- tech device. So for a student like that, um, the first thing I would do is probably just teach cause and effect through the device. So like that might mean it's a little bit more errorless. So I find something that's super motivating. So it's like I did an assessment um, you know a couple of weeks ago and it was the swing. This kid was so motivated by the swing. So first thing I need to find the most motivating thing. I'm like, okay, sensory stuff, swing, great. So then, you know, I, you know, pull up swing and maybe I have, that's the only thing on the screen for now. And I just start modeling, oh, let's go in the swing, right? And then, you know, I touch swing and see if the student will, you know, touch swing. If they don't, I keep modeling, I keep pushing them, um, you know, and then, Depending on you know whether or not a student will initiate, then you know, and typically a lot of the kids that I work with, they're like, okay, I can push this button, right? It's the only button here. I get it, um, and they start pushing swing, and I'm like, okay, great. And then systematically, I start kind of revealing more and more vocabulary to see, can you know, is swing um, with other words around it? Can they still find swing and you know, communicate swing? Um, and sometimes when you reveal more words, it's you know, oh, what are these words? I'm interested in touching these other buttons that you put on the. You know, ultimately, ultimately, my goal is to have success with you know one activity or one word, and then in the same session, build out as many words as I possibly can. Um, because ultimately I want to give kids all the words. Um, the other consideration that I think through is the communication partners around a child. So I have some kids that like, they could have a full version of whatever system and they can still find swing and they can find the vocabulary that they need. Um, but if the adults around that student don't feel comfortable because there's so many words and they feel overwhelmed and they already are like, there's just too many words. Like there's kind of that negative, um, connotation with having too much and being so overwhelmed, then I might pare it down a little bit. Um, as communication partners start getting more comfortable with the words and um, you know all of the locations of the words, then I'll again systematically keep revealing more vocabulary. Um, so I typically, you know it's a masking strategy um, but ultimately, you know, in my assessment, in my session where I'm trying to figure out is this tool, you know, a good tool for a student. Um, I will always try a full system. I will always have all the words at least to see what happens. Um, Cause it's just information gathering. Um, I need to know like, okay, like he still found the swing. There's you know, 77 icons on the screen and he still got swing. Uh, That tells me something. Um, It's just gathering all this information is really important when you start implementing because if there's, you know, roadblocks, I have information. Well, when I try out, you know, 77 icons, like he was able to still find that thing he was really motivated by. Um, So anyway, that's kind of a little bit of an insight into the thought process that I take with vocabulary and masking and the initial stages. Um, Again, I tinker around with that depending on a variety of different factors, um, you know, namely the student, uh, but generally speaking for an emergent communicator, that's the way I approach assessment.
0: So you listed off a bunch of factors, right? Um, and one you you didn't mention, but I think is probably in your mindset because it's in mine. In because everything you just said, I 100% agree with, and is exactly what I do, um, and what I suggest people do when they're when they're first implementing AEC. Is the attention of the student, like if you're observing the student and they're fleeting like every three to five seconds, and I'm not saying, I'm saying that like we measured it three to five seconds, they're playing with crayons and now they're over here and they're playing with blocks and now they're up and moving. That might be in it, one of those factors as well, as opposed to, oh, they're sustained and they're playing with crayons for like, like two minutes. Okay, that might change what I try. All that to say that when I'm coming into the room, um, before I'm even in there, my mindset is, not masked. My mindset is I'm going to present it unmasked. Unless some of those factors change my mind, everything you just mentioned, change my mind as I'm observing the student. And then go into masking and having one, two, uh, maybe three words, again, minim- minimize the errors that can be made, um, show them that cause and effect. Me, for instance, you said swing is an example. For me, it's um, ready, set, go. And I'll bring like a little, whatever the toy is, whatever we're playing, I can always build a tower out of it and like knock it, you know, move up, 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 ready, set, go. We're going to knock it down. And oh, it's hilarious into you know, that sort of thing. But the concept is the same. We are modeling and showing, like a bunch of times, that I can say, uh, "Ready, set, go," and I show "go" on the communication device, and then eventually they might hit "go" because I've modeled it a couple times right there in that particular session. Long term, going back to that uh, systemic approach of of implementation, I think sometimes what I see is that people leave the masking on like well we saw success with these five words or whatever the number might be so let's just keep there and what I would say to that is no you want to unlock the whole thing as if you if you can uh, if, unless there's some reason some rationale that you are empirically no you should lock it uh, otherwise let them have access to everything and then when you're introducing new vocabulary in very um, structured settings that's when you can go go back to the masking and use it for just a short, you know, five minute, 10 minute burst of an activity, and then turn it all back on again. How does that all sound?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we're doing very similar things. Um, and I agree with the, uh, everything you said, I think that, you know, ultimately, I want to get like early buy in and success, both with a child and with the communication partners. And so I think that that's where I start with like, a basic cause and effect situation. But I think we run into a huge problem when we're not constantly, every week, adding new vocabulary in. Um, Because again, like we need to give kids access to a lot of language. And this idea that kids need to meet some type of criterion of a word before we reveal new words is just completely false, in my opinion. Um, The other thing that you said, which I think is really important, um, is thinking about How can we... Well, part part of me thinks that it's really it's really hard because we want to see success with AAC, right? We want to see accuracy. We want to see intentional communication. We want to see all these things. And I think what happens is, especially in the initial stages, um, maybe we don't see that accuracy. Maybe we don't see you know, intentional communication or what appears to be intentional. Um, and I think that's where we get into problems because then all of a sudden, we're looking at a performance to decide whether or not robust language makes sense. And I think that that is the the thing that I have the biggest problem with is that if a student shows me that they don't even want to touch the device, they don't even touch it once during my assessment, I never think, oh, I need to go back to low tech. I always think I need more time to model language and show this child how to use it. And so I think it just goes back to presuming potential. I presume that every child is capable of using a robust language system and they don't have to necessarily perform for me to show me to prove that they deserve
0: it. All of that, all of that, 100%. Now, some people will say, uh, going back to PECS here for a second, well, I've seen success with PECS. And that I, we, we saw that in some of the comments. And um, uh, another thing that's sort of akin to that is um, I've seen success with PEX when it's implemented with fidelity, and uh, I haven't seen it with robust AAC implementation. And I I, I equate the analogy there. Um, if you'll if you'll bear with me for a second to kind of take a, a side road, is that I, often in the other work of inclusive design and assisted technology, people will be like, we know paper and pencils work, so can we just use paper and pencil? Let's not get let's not have people use uh, laptops for type typing notes because there's some research article someplace that, well, how many kids do you know were given a Chromebook or a keyboard at kindergarten and now are have had that their entire life? Like, there's not a lot of people bringing it back to the, this conversation, there's not a lot of people that have actually implemented robust AAC systems with fidelity, um, meaning we've implemented it. Like I said, I, I know plenty that have had access to robust AAC for years, but they've had, you know, three or four different speech therapists. The teachers always change. Are they really implementing it or did it just sit on the shelf? Was there a systematic plan in place for implementation or was it more that haphazard? There wasn't fidelity. where. Pex has the has the um, the luxury of it came out in 1985. There is a, a a structure to it that you can follow. It's a little easier um, to implement with fidelity. It's a laid out program that you can just follow. You know, um, and so so I feel like that's a um, a sticky point for people let's just implement the robust AAC with fidelity and then we'll see the outcome. But we haven't in, in a large scale, we haven't, we haven't necessarily tried that. Does that sound fair? Or maybe, uh, maybe it's like, no, Chris, you should come to our school district. We have tried it with fidelity and we're totally seeing it work. And, and maybe, Rachel, you could make the argument. If you look back at all the people we've interviewed, those would be people that have sit with that say, yeah, we're implementing it with fidelity and we are seeing it work.
1: I completely agree. I think when you say implementing with fidelity, you can only implement something with fidelity when there's a clear structure and layout, which I think PEX does a good job of that. But I think the reality is communication is not, it's messy. It's not like cut and dry. Every child is different and every communication system is different and so it it really, there's no such thing as a protocol that's standardized for implementing AAC, robust AAC. They're they're just, it doesn't exist. And so, and I don't think it ever can exist. And so I think that that's where it's so messy because we have, you know, some educators and some clinicians who want that so badly. I get so many emails from people, like basically Rachel tell me exactly what to do. And I'm like, I can't. Like, I can tell you the things that, you know, to consider. I can tell you the things to think about. Um, I can tell you, you know, generally speaking, what works for, you know, a lot of students, um, you know, thinking about things like motivation, modeling, you know, all of those things that we kind of talk about, but there's no like clear, systematic way to implement robust language systems because, you know, it's it's so it, it, it there's so many factors that go into it that can change what you're doing and why you're doing it. And so, you know, we need to rely on our clinical decision-making skills like this is what you know we are trained to do is to look at a situation analyze what's happening with communication you know learning the tool and then figuring out a way to start implementing it so that we see success and i think that that's where the breakdown is, is because you know, I, I feel like in order to implement something with fidelity, it has to be like step one, step two, step three, step four. <laughs> and it's just not like that with robust language systems. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't still be striving to implement, you know, robust language systems and that we can't still do our due diligence um, with robust language.
0: So let's be clear about that, because I feel like people might listen and hear, well, you're saying to implement it. uh <laughs> systematically but there is no system for how to do it and uh, what we mean by there is no system is that there is no commercial like this is what you do step one step two step three you buy the program and here now you can do it there are some curriculums uh, that that give you guidance for how to do that. And, of course, we give guidance in this podcast all the time, and all the people we interview give guidance on how to do that. But there's no just like – hey, and, in fact, I know some of my um, administrators that I've worked with are like, well, can we just buy the program on how to do it? Like, no, no, we're going to create the program because there is no just buy the program, right? Um, and I don't know that I want one, if that makes sense. You said, you said I don't think there's a way that it could ever be done. Even if it could be done, I wouldn't want it because I'd want to um, – I'd want to be able to dress up in my costumes. I'd want the students to have these um these these moments of connection that happen uh, spontaneously. You know? I'd want the communication temptations to be there because that's sort of the the fun of of uh, of learning it and the fun of teaching it, you know, is those sorts of connections and those sorts of moments.
1: And the other reason that I think this falls short in a lot of ways is because, we shouldn't be looking at mastery criterion to move on to introduce more language. Right? So I think that that's part of it too, is like there's stages of packs that you have to go through. And like I so many parents of, of, of mine who have come to me in my practice have been like, we're stuck at stage three of PECs, <laughs> And I'm like, let's not be stuck. Like we can't have like, oh, you need to hit 80% accuracy before we introduce this idea or this word or this feature, right? It's like, oh, I need to hit 80% accuracy before I introduce a keyboard. Like, no, like we don't need to hit criterion. Like we need to make sure that, you know, everybody is on board with the kind of ways that we're implementing and that we use a team approach and talk to people about what we're doing and why and brainstorm, you know, collaboratively, but. It's just like, you know, there's no reason to wait to introduce um, language or certain features of an AAC system. You know, we don't need to, again, again, it goes back to this like idea of prerequisites. Like there is no such thing as prerequisites for AAC. And, you know, in my own practice, I've never had a student not be able to learn how to communicate through robust language systems. Like I've never once had to be like, well, I guess I should have started with PECs because they, they're not doing it. Um, and so it's just like if we if we know that we can teach those skills like initiation and all those things through high tech AAC and we know that that's a good, you know, that's the best viable long term solution. I just don't understand why we feel like we need to start somewhere else.
0: Well, I think what people in the comments, some of the people in the comments would say why they should start somewhere else is because they've seen PECS work. Uh, And I know certain uh, therapists... Uh, personally who would say i've seen PECs work and in fact i i've seen robust aac fail but again i feel like it's not it's because it wasn't implemented with fidelity and then whenever i hear someone say i've seen peck's work um the meme that comes up in my head is chris hemsworth talking to um uh, bruce banner mark ruffalo where he goes did it though do it really though did it really work like what does work mean you know like yeah i got the student to i don't know hand me something, um, and make a request. Is that work? Is that working? Is that what work means? You, you got it to work? Like, cause did it really work? You know, did it really though? Um, because that can also work with robust AAC, but that leads you to a path of, of, uh, of many, many, many more words where PEX not necessarily will, you know, some it might, but, but for everybody, it won't.
1: And just to add on many other pragmatic functions beyond just requesting. So it's like, we know that that is the primary use of PECs, even if, like, the manual says, you know, otherwise. Um, we know that nine times out of ten, kids who are using PECs, they are only using it for requesting, and they're only, you know, putting it into, like, a sentence strip, like, I want crackers.
0: Yeah, to be clear though, when I say it'll work for some, what I mean is it'll work for those students that eventually become, who use verbal speech as their primary form of communication. But, I, again, I don't... Once again, we'll ask the same question that we asked last time, Rachel. Show me one person, one person who used PEX that is an AAC user that says that was the tool, that was the strategy that worked for me, and then 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 maybe I'll consider it again.
1: I know. Well, I mean, I again, I uh, appreciate all of the feedback and the comments. I think it's helping us having a th- have a thoughtful discussion and kind of brainstorm. Um, you know, ultimately, I think. I think that any educator that's working with a child with complex communication needs, they ultimately want to give access to all the words all the time, right? I think that that's a common thing. Like we get into this field because we wanna help people and we care. Um, That's the common thread that connects us all as educators. And so, you know, we need to start thinking about how we can make that happen and how we can do it faster and more efficiently. And, you know, I think that basically what we're trying to say here is that it's it's not necessary to have this stepping stone of PECs before we get access to high tech AAC. Um, you know, and I've seen so many so many students learn initiation through robust language and high-tech AAC. It's not something that can't be taught. Uh, like you said, Chris, there's a motor movement involved. It just is the same as actually handing a picture over. Um, you know, but if you do in a systematic way, when you're considering a child's highly motivating situations or things, then I think you can see a lot of success over time.
0: And I will add this one last piece. If you're looking for like, well, I haven't met anyone who has who has learned to use robust AAC, let's say with autism or um, with other disabilities. Just listen to our podcast. That's exactly what the po- go back and listen. You want to hear them? They'll tell you using the robust AAC that they learned to use it. Um, and they have disabilities like autism you can go back and listen these th- this is one of the reasons I uh, doing this podcast has been so powerful for me personally is because you get to meet the people and they can just tell you what worked for them
1: can I add one more thing this is going really long but I have so much to say Chris we might have to like make dedicated entire episode to pecs <laughs> um, but I think that when we I've already kind of talked about the problems with when we say it's not working, right? Like I hate when people are like, it's not working. Um, because I think that if we give kids enough time and we find motivating situations that it will always work. Um, you know, if we have that mindset, right. Um, the mindset of it not working is so problematic. Um, but if it does feel like it's not working, one strategy that I use um, in my practice is um, switching over to trying more fringe vocabulary initially. So sometimes you have more success with fringe vocabulary, the specific things that a child you know, is really excited about. Um, and even sometimes I'll take a photograph instead of using an icon for those things um, to get kind of that initial Whatever success buy-in, you name it. Um, so that's definitely something to consider. If you're trying robust language and you're working, you know, primarily with core language, um, trying you know some fringe vocabulary can be really helpful. Um, but again, caveat: like I'm not saying only do fringe. I'm not saying get stuck with fringe. I'm saying introduce core right away. But having those specific things can be really helpful for students. Um, you know, and I think that that could help alleviate some of this. Well, it's not working. Um, from people's people's mindset because you know you just need to make sure you're figuring out the right vocabulary and you know you might have to change some things like using a photograph instead of an icon and and that's where the troubleshooting comes in to figure out well how can i make this work um instead of throwing out the whole system and being like this whole system, this whole idea of robust doesn't work we need to go back to low tech.
0: 100 all of that i love the strategy that you just suggested it's a very practical one and i love the mindset behind it that um I need to do something different. We need to do something different. It's it's not the system's fault. It's not uh, meaning the AAC is fault, and it's not the student's fault. It's something in the design of what we're doing that we can change to try something different. And we'll keep doing that because the simple solution is try a different system. Because if you try a different system, 100% of the time they will make progress. Why? Because what else? What other choice do they have? They have no other choice. They've given. You've taken away anything they know. So, of course, they're going to start to make progress on it. And then they'll get to the same stuck place that they were before because you haven't changed what you've done. So I just love that message, Rachel. Thank you for making that point.
1: Absolutely, Chris. I mean, I think we could keep talking, but we have an interview to get into. Is it an interview? Yes.
0: Well, it is an interview today. And so this one, speaking of talking to AAC users, this is with an AAC user. So let's have a listen to my interview with India Oaks. Great news, everybody. We're going to be presenting a pre-conference workshop for Closing the Gap called Designing and Delivering Empowering Experiences to Teach Language Using AAC.
1: This six-hour virtual workshop takes place over two days, October 7th and 8th, from 1 to 4 p.m. Central Time on each day.
0: This interactive workshop explores strategies for teaching students of all ages language by engineering environments so all communicators have opportunities for rich, meaningful practice in the context of everyday routines.
1: Participants will get to explore how to design experiences using interactive technologies which empower the student and their support network, putting them on the path to achieve their lifelong language goals.
0: During the workshop, we're going to take an in-depth look at building the skills of communication partners through structured training centered on both consulting and coaching. We'll be sharing the latest
1: tools and strategies for establishing a culture of language learning using AAC. Everybody loves engaging tools.
0: You can sign up now by going to bit.ly/designAAC. That's bit.ly/designAAC.
1: Can't wait to see you guys there.
0: Oh, and there's one more thing to mention, Rachel. What's that, Chris? I'm actually doing two pre-conferences on those days. I'll be presenting with the other authors of the new Inclusive Learning 365 book as well. The title of that pre-conference is Inclusive Learning 365, Breaking Down Barriers and Creating a Culture of Inclusivity by Design. That pre-conference is also on October 7th and October 8th, 2021, but it will be at 9 to 12 central time on those days. If you'd like to learn more about how to redesign educational experiences through an inclusive lens, then you can register for that pre-conference by going to bit.ly inclusivectg. That's bit.ly inclusivectg. Come spend the whole day with me. See you there. So, welcome to the Talking with Tech podcast. My name is Chris Bougay, and today I'm joined with a very special guest, India Oaks. Oaks, did I say that right, India?
2: Yes, you did. And hello, Chris. And I just wanted to thank you for having me as a guest on your podcast. And congratulations on getting close to that 200 episode mark. Quite an accomplishment.
0: Well, thank you for saying that, thank you for listening, and thank you for being here and spending your time with us. Um, We have lots to discuss, so I'm just going to dive right in a little bit here and say uh, sort of the first question we always ask is to tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do.
2: I am happy to share a bit about myself, although you would find out much, much more if you spent a few hours with me at a baseball game or a Chris Isaac concert, or if you have the stamina a Star Wars marathon. That said, just to open, I am a mother, first and foremost, and so everything I do is based on that. I know Americans like to talk about work when meeting new people, so just to get that part out of the way, I have worked for the federal government for the last 10 years and prior to that I worked on international human rights issues with activists in over 20 countries, and on juvenile detention reform with stakeholders across the country, along with serving a year in AmeriCorps, immediately after law school, which is the domestic version of the Peace Corps, and I also have done some freelance web design work along the way, mostly to offset the bills in school. But when not parenting, or working, I keep busy with, among other things, Taekwondo and my 37th year playing soccer, the Coast Guard Auxiliary, chairing the national disability nonprofit, Communication First, along with chairing my city's Education Commission, and active in my county's chapters of the NAACP, and showing up for racial justice. Oh and similar to your activities Chris, in about a month I will be launching my own podcast with another parent, where we will be focused on education and human rights at the local and national level, with an extra emphasis on students with disabilities. We are calling the podcast, Morning Announcements, with the tagline, Spotlighting Education and Human Rights, so for anyone interested Just visit my Facebook page to look for public posts with links to the podcast once we are live.
0: So, India, there's a lot there. First, congratulations on the podcast. Of course, I'm super excited about that. You've already got your first listener. I will be the first one to sign up um, and subscribe. Uh, And then, as soon as that comes out and you um, have your episodes, let us know. We'll, of course, you know, uh, we never see uh, a new podcast coming in as competition, it's all collaborative and everyone helping each other. So, I just love the idea of a podcast. That sounds like a blast. Definitely. Um, now, let's see. There's a lot of other stuff that you said in there. Um, let's start with Star Wars. Anytime you want. You know, I'm a huge Star Wars fan as well. Uh, Mandalorian. Um, I will watch those movies over and over and over again. Even the ones that people are like kind of um, down on. I don't I'm, I'm a huge fan of, uh, of it all. So and including the the animated series. My son and I have watched The Bad Batch. We do the whole thing. So are you up on all of it?
2: I did go to the 18-hour marathon when Episode 7 came out and still have my Star Wars sheets from 1980, which you can briefly see in the first episode of The Americans.
0: (laughs) Awesome, Awesome. Have you been to Disney? Have you done the Star Wars experience at Disney yet? I have been to Disney, but not since they hijacked Star Wars. Yeah, me too. I've been to Disney, but not seen the Star Mm -hmm. Wars stuff. So, um... Maybe we'll do that sometime. Maybe that will be <laughs> get together. Um, all right. Well, enough about Star Wars because the people listening to this podcast. But Chris, we could geek out on it for a while. But can we just get to the the? You hear you're talking to an AAC user that has a um, advocacy uh, activism uh, experience. Can we get to that stuff? So <laughs> let's let's start there. So what's your history with AAC?
2: That question has both a simple and more complex answer, starting with how do you define AAC? Is it any kind of communication method besides verbal speech, or is it stereotyping AAC as only devices or letter boards? But we can shelve that conversation for another day, since the reality is, I grew up communicating primarily through writing notes, with limited use of sign language mostly finger spelling to those who randomly knew the signed alphabet it was only when starting college in 1993 that i started to use the old words plus speech software easy keys on a laptop because as people in the aac community quickly learn i was never going to use anything with symbols since control of my vocabulary has been sacred to me for as long as I can remember. And I kept using that software until just a few years ago when I transitioned to more regular use of Prologue for text on my iPad. Although, again, anyone that interacts with me in person will see, I still tend to use pen and paper in one-on-one situations. And along the same lines, even though I was born with a speech disability, besides the different therapists that popped in and out of my life as a child, I handled all my purchases of the words plus software out of pocket, so I did not have any contact with the AAC community, or the disability community in general, until 2006. When Words Plus profiled me back in the days where companies still mailed catalogues to people, and a former speech-language pathologist recognized me and reached out. And the rest is history when asked to be involved with different AAC activities, since the one word I can verbally say that people can understand is the one word I never say, which is, no. (laughs) No.
0: Yeah. I feel you there. Um, so India, let me ask, so the only symbols you really use are the, uh, alphabet, like those symbols, right? You're yeah. using prolo quoted text. Do you use word prediction as well? Uh,
3: yeah.
0: So it's, you're typing out every single word fully. Yeah. All right. All right. And, um, like you said that, um, that's something that's still relatively new to you as an application, because uh, you still typically, if we were in uh, an in-person situation, you'd be writing on a piece of paper.
3: Mm-hmm. Yes, writing is just habit
2: plus faster to me. Mm-hmm.
0: Um. When you were a little girl, then somewhere along the line, someone had to say, we're going to teach this girl to spell and we're going to teach this girl to be literate and to read. Mm. Right. I mean, someone had to. Did you have an experience like that where you had educators in your corner or maybe family? How did how did that all happen? I was writing and reading as early as age 3. Oh, it just sort of came naturally to you. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. So you were exposed to books and letters and suddenly they started making sense to you and you part started putting putting them together. That's fortunate because I feel like that's pretty rare. Like usually yeah. it has to be like someone explicitly teaching you those things.
2: It's very rare if you at the demographic of AAC users, which is sad, but that is why I still have my medical reports from age three and four where they called me mildly retarded before actually testing me. They had no idea.
0: That's that. So I know we're going to talk about ableism later on, but that I feel like that's part of it right there, right? That's you you uh. experienced it from a very young age. Um, so India, let me ask, do you carry like a, a notebook around with you? Do you have a series of notebooks that you carry around in a in a in a pen? Like is that your your go to sort of tool?
2: Actually, I don't. Even in school, it was not every day. Maybe because I didn't see it as so important. But now, I carry around my phone, as we all do, and I am getting more comfortable pulling that out. If I don't have paper, or if I am talking to someone that can't read English or a young child.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, you could... um, uh put in a text messages and have it translate, right? Or put it into some sort of uh, Google doc or something mm-hmm. like that and have it translated.
2: Plus my speech app.
0: Oh yeah. And you can of course use your speech yeah. app as well. Yeah. Okay. That makes it total sense. So, um, India, that sounds like the last couple of years, well, maybe even before you were, um, uh, even more invested into AAC, uh, the in the AAC advocacy work. Mm-hmm. You've been working as advocacy, you were working in the field of advocacy and activism even before that. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how did you get involved with uh, advocacy, advocacy, activism? And then eventually, I know you through USAC, right? You were the president of USAC mm-hmm. for a while? Mm-hmm
3: In
2: terms of advocacy, I just was born to fight for others. I decided to be a lawyer at age five and did my first workshop at age 11 and was an active student lobbyist. I just always wanted to make sure people could be everything they want to be. And then from what I just was starting to mention about getting involved with the AAC community in general, just to expand from what I started to say before, when my old, S.L.P. reached out to me in 2006, she invited me to the AAC State of the Science, conference that was happening in conjunction to CSUN that year, and within weeks after being thrown into that world, I was asked to be on USAC's board of directors, which of course the natural-born leader, or caretaker, in me, said okay too even though I knew nothing about AAC outside of my own life, and two years later I became president-elect, and then took over as president four months before my son was born. And since then, even when I moved on to the board of Isaac, and then tried my best to stop being so involved with 500 different things. I still could not stop saying no when people I now call friends asked for my help or support on different projects or policies USAC was working
0: on. Um, I know that feeling of not, not being able to say no. You didn't say no when, we, when I contacted you to be on the podcast. It's like, sure, I'll do it, I guess. It seems like you're super busy, though. Um, so appreciate that. One, I appreciate, of course, you being on the podcast. But two, uh, volunteering your time um, in all of these different uh, organizations. Because uh, the needle moves because of people like you spending your time doing this.
3: It's both a blessing
0: and curse that people trust me so much. It's a blessing and a curse because people are, um, constantly asking you for more help and more help, right? If you weren't so good at what you were doing, (laughs) I know. I've often thought of like, if I intentionally screw this up, then people will stop asking me to do so much. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I, I feel that. Um, All right. So let's talk about us, how we did hook up, right. And how we got to, to, this is the first time we're meeting, but, um, what was the impetus behind this interview was, um, Mike Hippel reached out. So if people aren't familiar with Mike Hippel, Mike was on the podcast in the, in the past, another advocate, uh, AAC advocate and really advocate for more than just AAC. Um, but he was telling me about this, um, amplifying AAC voices campaign. And he was saying, um, you should interview somebody about it and you should interview India about it. Does that, is that right? I mean, does that all all sound right?
2: Basically, he asked the development team and as usual, no one else was stepping up. So here I am. (laughs)
0: Um, So let's, let's hear about it. Let's talk about it a little bit. What is amplifying AAC voices?
2: I could not be more excited to talk with you and your audience about USAC's Amplifying AAC Voices campaign. Officially launched on September 8th, Amplifying AAC Voices is a three-year campaign, focused on increasing the voices of people who use augmentative and alternative communication, and to provide more ways for them to share with the world, their hopes, dreams, needs, interests abilities, and successes. To put it another way, the campaign is meant to 1. Promote the skills and talents of people who use AAC, 2. Highlight their voices through methods the general public, and others who use AAC, can better access, learn from, and embrace, and 3. Provide a platform for people who use AAC to be hired as speakers. That last part actually goes to the campaign's activity in this first year, which is the establishment of the AAC Speaker Connection, an online portal where anyone, within, or outside of, the AAC world, can find and hire individuals who use AAC as invited speakers for everything from guest teaching at colleges or public schools, to presenting at a conference or trainings or speaking before local organizations or media events. Then, just as a quick initial summary, years two and three of the Amplifying AAC Voices campaign will see the development and expansion of a database and media catalogue, which will let the public access not only activity from the AAC speaker connection, but also see AAC activities through news features, podcasts, plays, and other creative efforts by AAC users.
0: India, a quick follow-up question to that. One of the very first things that you said there was that it's a three-year campaign. Can you explain that a little bit? As Is it like it ends in three years? Because it sounds like it's going to be this amazing resource that will, you know, once it's all there, uh, like a central hub that people can go to, uh, I would hate for it to like disappear in three years.
2: None of the activities will disappear, the first three years is all about getting it established and then as with anything, we examine what is working and what needs improvement and develop more supports along
0: the way. Gotcha. It's like a three-year plan, really. Yeah. But there's the the idea is that it won't just end in three years; it'll continue oh. going. You've just plotted out. Here's what we're really focused on for the next three years. That makes total sense. Um, it's almost like a um again to an, an analogy. There's like an IEP. Here's what we're doing for a year. But sometimes we're actually trying to scope out mo- multiple years of of where we're headed and some of the goals we have. That makes a lot of sense to me. Did I hear correctly too that a part of this campaign is um so people will have uh an organization will go to this portal and they'll say, Oh, well, who I want someone to uh to do a presentation. Let me look through it. Oh, there's somebody that might do that 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 either is local or that I could video conference in. That's sort of the the idea behind it, right? And then I can pay that person to be my guest speaker. You're nodding, yes. Yeah. Um and then did I also hear correctly that the it, it potentially some of that stuff might be recorded and it will be placed back or that there'll be a a, a like look at all the places these People have been presenting, so it's a. Uh, uh, let's say it's a year three, and um, uh, some. I'll just pick a random place. Some place in Kentucky has hired somebody to come out and do a presentation. This someone in Ohio might go, "Oh wow, look at all the presentations you've done. This, this person has got some experience here. Like it, it sort of is a marketing platform as well. Like wow, we've got uh, some buzz going on here for 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 people. Does that sound fair? Is that right?
2: Yes, you are exactly right, with the understanding that each event will decide if it can be publicized.
0: There won't be a requirement necessarily that it's oh. that, that it's publicized or that there's a video recording or anything like that, but it's an option people have. Hmm. Got it, got it. Okay, um, so let me ask the next question, which is, how do people get involved? And what I mean by that is... Um, Clearly, we want to advertise to people that want to hire people. But what if you're a, an AAC user and you want to be a speaker? You know, yeah, this sounds great. It's a way to advertise and maybe get um, my own platform out there and get hired, you know, and get a job. Um, that sounds like there might be AAC users that don't know about it. And that'd be one avenue. But then, of course, the... um the, the, the organizations that need to hire um, and want to bring people in, how do they hear about it? Is it all sort of the same? What's the, what's the way people can get involved?
2: Great question. People can get involved in many ways. First, when it comes to the AAC speaker connection, we want to hear from all of you. If you are a person that uses AAC, that likes public speaking, Please sign up to be a speaker so you can be heard and paid while doing so. I know some do public speaking as a living, but you do not need to be a professional speaker to be part of the AA Speaker Connection. Even if there is just one specific topic or audience you want noted on your profile, you still can be a speaker. And those who want to have someone come speak please visit the website and contact whoever you think is best for your event or audience. I will say one of the best parts of registering as a speaker myself, was being able to put in additional topics or potential audiences under the other field, so those interested in hiring a speaker should take the time to see whatever someone put as other if a speaker did use that option. And for reference, both potential speakers and those looking to hire one can visit the website at speaker.usac.org once again that is speaker.usac.org and i am sure the link will be included on the section for this episode as well the other thing people can do to get involved is to support the campaign financially Even though speakers will be paid by whoever hires them, USAC is still investing a lot in creating these platforms, marketing activities, and providing secondly support on things like providing mentors to those new at public speaking. Along with normal donations, USAC is organizing a virtual auction to support the AAC Amplifying Voices campaign which will happen October 1st to October 5th. So for those who are listening to this podcast episode the day it goes public, mark your calendars for three days from now to start bidding on some very cool and exciting items like vacation homes or less cool items like a personalized autograph copy of the book I co-authored earlier this year about leaders in the AAC world. And it is never too late to also provide items to donate to the auction, so if you have anything interesting enough to bid on, whether it is a physical item or interactive activity, please contact me, or send an email to virtualauction at USAC.org, that is virtual auction with no spacing, at USAC.org.
0: So I know that um, just I'll I'll click click the ding button here. Ding. I know I I donated an inclusive learning 365 book. Right. And so uh, and you, India, you donated one of your books. What's the title of your book and where can people find it?
2: It's a long title so go to Amazon and just type in Becoming an
0: Exceptional Leader and click the book about the fifteen AAC leaders. Gotcha. Gotcha. Wait, was this written with Mailing? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Now I know this book, right? Okay. Um, so this sounds like an an the the experience of um uh, that it's happening here on October. You said October 1st through uh-huh. October 5th. Uh-huh. Um, that sounds like an awesome event to be a, to be a part of. And you said people can still donate if they want to, but then they can also um, provide money financially um, uh, or provides financial support and potentially win. You, did you say that you could win um, like going to somebody's uh, house, like going uh-huh. to a, <laughs> that's awesome. Oh my gosh. Like a vacation home sort of thing. That's, that's amazing. Cool. That's so cool. Um, All right. So uh, let me sort of wrap up here with the sort of the big question that I want to ask you, because we've we've talked about the organization. We've talked about the campaign that's coming out, which I I think we're all in support of. And everyone who's listening to the podcast is going to be supportive. And we're going to try and get it out to as many places as possible. Let's talk about you for a second here. And let's talk about... um, What's been on your mind recently when it comes to AAC? Uh, what are you curious about, and maybe what are you questing after? I always like to ask that question. What's what are you questing after? What do you want to learn more about?
3: So, can we have a conversation about having uncomfortable conversations? Absolutely.
2: Well I definitely quest after a lot of things, otherwise I would not have done a mini-analysis of the lyrics of The Impossible Dream in my chapter of the Becoming an Exceptional Leader book, but over the last year or so, one of the things that has been at the forefront of my mind in terms of AAC, is the systemic racism within all things AAC. As you can guess from our earlier discussion, I come into all of this as someone that has had human rights and equity, not AAC, at the core of all that I have done in life. So it was surprising for myself that it took me this long to put two and two together when realizing just how bad systemic racism is within the AAC world. And let me be clear, I am saying systemic racism instead of racism, because even though we know there are racists out there, not everyone involved with AAC is a racist. And for decades the lack in diversity in AAC professionals has been very apparent, with most being white, and mostly women at that. However, this is not just about diversity. Whether it is by ignorance or on purpose, the systems in place for AAC users have continuously left out any reference to minorities, especially people of color. Because I never used an AAC device with symbols, it was only recently that I realized how many symbols were missing that apply not only to people of color, but the whole concept of racism. I know some companies started to provide options to do different skin tone in their apps. But that is not enough. I have yet to find any symbol that actually says African American, and unless I type in black person, I never see black or brown people included when looking for symbols such as for kids or family. The only exception is some Arabic-based symbols that have Muslims included. But there is more, when I look for a symbol from Martin Luther King, all I find is an American flag with text that says MLK Day on it. But would it be so hard to just have the bust of Dr. King as a symbol? And I have never found any symbol at all for the words racism, racist, or anti-racism. And it took me a long time to find one set of symbols for Black Lives Matter. When I type in the World Hispanic in the Global Symbol website, the only symbol that comes up is a stereotype of figures in costume for Hispanic Day. I could go on and on, and actually did do a whole lecture on this earlier this year to a class of speech-language pathologist students, but my point is, if there are no symbols readily available for people to communicate who they are, or to tell someone that someone, or something, is racist, then how can we fully communicate? How can we fully engage in both the good and bad in society? And it just makes me then wonder how much of black history or anti-racism curriculum is being taught to those who use AAC who are placed in special education classrooms. We already know how censored our history textbooks have been in normal classrooms over the centuries. I just cannot imagine how much is being left out for those who are not provided the same curriculum as their peers, especially at this time when diversity and anti-racism and implicit bias have become more prioritized in school. I will just stop there for now but there is a whole wealth of systems and structures in place within the AAC world that no one has looked at with an equity lens, mostly because why would we think to do so if most of us involved are white, but it has to be addressed and not just in scientific journals or conference presentations or on podcasts like now.
0: All right. So India, all of those are excellent points. Um, What do you think we do about it? Like I said, there's some conversation happening now. More conversation happening now than ever before. So I I put that as a good thing, right? Um, we're doing our part with podcasts, at least trying to have these conversations. Um, and when I say doing our part, that's something, I guess. Some you know uh, that there's and we. It's such an excellent point that it's it's um, baked into the system, right? So and the, if it was just a one person that was racist, we could address that, you know. But baked into the system makes that a lot harder or two and a lot longer process to address so what are some strategies do you think we can do to um and i know that we have developers that listen to this podcast so they might be listening to like okay well yeah i want to fix this i want to make it better i want to address this in some way um what can they do what are some strategies Mm -hmm. we can use
3: Two things that immediately
2: come to mind are, first make symbols of everyday people in a diverse set of colors, but more importantly, bring in experts on black history and anti-racism, to look at the symbol sets we have, to say this is what is missing, and once you have those symbols, put it in the vocabulary sets people always use, so they are learning now, instead of having to look for a symbol years later.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. That makes a lot of sense to me, right? Let's just ask people and have them tell us what to do. (laughs) Right? Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, Do you have any other thoughts about this? Any other strategies that, that come to mind?
2: I have lots of thoughts, like tackling the curriculum in special education classrooms and having every AAC manufacturer have an equity department. So they use an equity lens in every decision being made.
0: So it's funny you say that, India, because... Um... A few years ago, our local school district, um, we sort of ad- adopted a policy of um, reviewing materials from an equity lens and from an inclusivity lens. So um, when we bring in different factions of people to to kind of look at it and and look at the materials we're putting in place and saying, all right, one is it accessible, right? And and then two, what kind of um, um, diverse questions uh, is it is it working to address? Um are we being culturally responsive, you know, and making sure there's not any sort of subtle uh, implicit bias that's coming out in the in the materials? And so I think that is an an excellent step is that you, have people actually try that's part of the process of considering materials and considering your curriculum is looking at it from as many different lenses as possible because that has that um a lasting effect where if it's just educating one person that person leaves or they they um they they retire or whatever and it doesn't change the system it just changed one individual that's not to say it doesn't help i mean changing one person helps but um but baking it into the system is really what needs to happen.
2: And bring people like black people with disabilities, because that combination makes a difference too. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, so it it it's so interesting that you bring that up because that has been on my mind for uh, a long time now. the The idea that um, if we only talk about um, racism and if we only talk about ableism Mm. and we keep those things separate um the the people that we could really help the most the most efficient way Mm. to maybe help everybody and address that situation um and address those concerns is to look at the cross section you can't see my hands right now but i'm making a venn Mm. diagram if we look at people who um uh, who are Black and AAC users, or Black and have a disability? And we work to think, how can we design things better for that uh, individual? Then we 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 hit more people faster, right? Isn't that the, uh, more efficient? That's how I've been thinking about it. Huh.
3: Also, it's
2: even deeper, black with a disability from middle class versus black with a disability from lower socioeconomic, or black with a disability who is an immigrant. There are so many layers that we need to acknowledge and address.
0: That makes a lot of sense. That makes uh, so much sense, right? Um, All right, well, India, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Any sort of final thoughts here before I invite you to come back and talk on one of our small talk episodes?
2: It's been such a pleasure, and while I will avoid the quote, do or do not, there is no try, I will just say to everyone, speak up no matter where you are, people are listening.
0: What a great way to to end this 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 uh interview yeah oh what a great way to leave it. we'll just leave it right there thank you so much india for for volunteering your time to be here and for the, your work on amplifying aec voices and your advocacy work um and activism in the in the past um and i'm looking forward to future collaborations with you uh this is the way right this is the... <laughs> i have spoken <laughs>